Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. There are two great stories, one in press TV entitled West's Ukraine Fantasy Will Spell Doom for the Ukrainian Nation, and the other, which you can find in RT, is entitled Nuclear Ukraine, Arming Kiev with the World's Most Dangerous Weapons Would Be a Disaster. It just so happens that they are both written by the same person. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer. He's the author of Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika, Arms Control in the End of the Soviet Union. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War. And from 91 to 98 was a U.N. weapons inspector, Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. So you write in uh, the West's Ukrainian fantasy, you say, in the words of U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, Europe is undergoing one of the greatest struggles in the name of freedom since the American Revolution. He says the Ukrainians are fighting for their country. They're fighting for their future. They're fighting for their freedom. And then he went on to say, I am convinced and confident that at the end of the day, Ukraine's independence, Ukraine's sovereignty will prevail and will be be there long after Vladimir Putin has left the scene. End quote. Scott, I keep asking this question. How can Blinken and Biden at all talk about Ukrainians fighting for freedom and sovereignty when the U.S. overthrew their democratically elected government in 2014? Joe Biden was the vice president. Blinken was the deputy secretary of state. Victoria Nuland was the lead U.S. point person for the Revolution of Dignity. Uh, where and she helped establish loan guarantees to Ukraine, including a billion dollars. And they were all in the administration that overthrew the democratically elected government. So, Scott, all of that chatter from Blinken and from Biden and from Newton, it doesn't make sense. No, I mean, it's it, it's typical American political speak um, attached to the notion of shaping perception, not reflecting reality. Um, I mean, that, that, that basically Blinken, Biden, Newland, Sullivan, anybody else who speaks on the issue of Ukraine today is so divorced from reality uh, to make the, the world, the narrative they're trying to project pure fantasy. And that's why I use that word uh, in the title. Um, it's a dangerous fantasy, though, because, uh, you know, <laughs> eventually reality jumps up and bites you. And um, maybe in Washington, D.C., they haven't caught on to the, the fact that reality is chomping away at the Ukrainians as we speak. Uh, I find it uh, humorous um, with uh, you know, a, a small amount of uh, bitterness that um, you know, Blinken talks about you know, the Ukrainians outlasting uh, Putin. Um, Blinken will be lucky to be Secretary of State uh, this time next year. Uh, there's an election coming up. Uh, the Democrats are going to lose badly, and invariably, uh, failed administrations purge those who uh, whom they can hold accountable for the failures. And Blinken is one of the uh, key architects of this failed policy 
that we have in Ukraine. Um, he will join a long list of American officials um, whom have been outlasted by uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, you know, five presidents and uh, and uh, more secretary of states. Uh, I, I just it's 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 a statement of hubris. Um, the Ukrainian regime that the United States is defending is an illegitimate regime, a regime brought on by, as you mentioned, a a revolution that we uh, instigated. Um, and the conflict that's being waged today is a conflict. We, we've learned some interesting things in the last couple of days. Uh, uh, Petro Poroshenko, the former president of Ukraine, has bragged that the Minsk Accords, which were uh, supposed to create um, a vehicle for ending the conflict in Donbass, preserving the Donbass as part of the sovereign territory of Ukraine, uh, which had been signed uh, by Ukraine together with Germany and France, the so-called Normandy format, Russia monitoring. We turned to, it, it, it turns out it was a sham from the start. He said, we never intended to implement Minsk. The Germans and the French knew this. This was a plan to buy us time so that NATO could train the Ukrainian military so that we could forcibly recapture the Donbass. This is the military that had been assembled by the Ukrainians uh, in eastern Ukraine uh, prior to the Russian um, preemptive uh, attack on February 24th. We, we, so what we're seeing here is not only is this an illegitimate you know, government installed by an American-backed revolution, but it's a government that's been living a lie for eight years, waging a horrible uh, war of, um, not quite, you know, I can't call it genocide, but a, a war designed to make the civilian population of Donbass suffer uh, in preparation for a war of aggression. Um, you know, th this is the worst government possible. It's not democratic. It's aligned itself with uh, the most... Um, odious, nationalist, neo-Nazi-type ideology imaginable, and it's one that doesn't believe in peace but in violence, violence backed by NATO, backed by the United States, backed by Blinken. Scott, the other thing is this, you know, when you ask how does, how does this thing end, you know, in the event that, um, you know, eventually it's going to end for and end very, very badly for the, uh, the government of, of, of uh, the puppet government in, um, in, in Kiev. But here's my thoughts. If you have a realistic outlook, you can manage or control or some, in some manner negotiate an end to this thing. Where they are going, the direction they're going now with the absurd um, narratives, and I might add that comment by Petro Poroshenko says to the Russians, if you had any thought of negotiating with this people, you better put it out of your mind now. The term that comes to mind is collapse, that that's how it ends for Kiev, that either there's some kind of a coup, that there's something, that because if you're not in reality, at some point when reality meets you, it's going to be sudden. And I predict some kind of collapse. And might I add, with the way things are going economically in Europe, uh, they may be facing the same fate. Scott? No, you're, you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, you know, there was a... Um uh, the uh, St. Peter's Economic, St. Petersburg Economic Forum was held last week, um, and uh, in addition to what I think is going to go down in history as one of the most important speeches of modern time, the presentation made by Vladimir Putin at the pre at the conference, um, 
other people spoke. Uh, Petro, uh, not Petro Pushing, I'm sorry, Dmitry Pushilin, the uh, president of the Donetsk uh, People's Republic, uh, one of the two uh, newly independent republics in the Donbass, spoke at the forum uh, at something that is hosted by the president. So I don't imagine he would speak um, out of school, so to speak. And he said some interesting things. One, he said uh, the special military operation will probably end by, by the year's end, by the end of the year, which means the Russians aren't in any hurry to finish this thing. They're committed to a fight that's going to go on for at least you know, five, six, seven more months. Um, and there's no panic on the part of the Russians. They're not, they're not worried about too much. He said because Ukraine has accepted these NATO weapons, the special military operation will not end once we liberate Donbass, but will go on uh, until these weapons are eliminated. He also said that um, Russian cities in Ukraine will be Russian again. All Russian cities. That means Kharkov. That means Petrovsk. That means Odessa. Um, which means we now have begun to see um, you know, where this, this war is heading. Ukraine's going to lose at a minimum you know, a, a third of their uh, of their territory. And then he said something very interesting. I don't believe Ukraine will last as a nation state when this is done, which is what you're talking about. It alludes to collapse, meaning that, um, you know, the longer they resist, the, the more damage is going to be done to Ukraine as a nation state. And then the last thing he said was Zelensky is a war criminal and he will be arrested and put on trial in the Donetsk People's Republic um, for the crime of ordering the shelling of, uh, of the civilian population of Donetsk, not only in the past, but what's taking place uh, today. So that's the future of Ukraine. It's not a good future. And I will also say that it's a future that cannot be altered. Uh, Russia will not negotiate away uh, its goals and objectives. They've said over and over again, this operation will continue until we have achieved everything we set out to achieve. And because the Ukrainians have decided to receive weaponry to extend this fight, uh, that, that means the Ukrainians have opted to commit national suicide, which is what is happening right now. U.S. alarmed that American fighters could face death penalty in Donbass. John Kirby, a White House spokesman, expressed alarm that uh, these fighters could face the death penalty capital, the Donetsk, the capital of the newly independent Donbass People's Republic. This is in uh, Press TV. You have been saying uh, for quite a while that they that they shouldn't. In fact, Kirby goes on to say, it is appalling that a public official in Russia would even suggest the death penalty for two American citizens that were in Ukraine, and we're going to continue to try to learn what we can do about this. Scott Ritter. Let me... <laughs> For this, I'll just start off and saying, look, as an American, as a human being, um, ideally, I would like to see, you know, one guy return to his mom and the other guy return to his fiance. Um, you know, that that's what the human in me says. Uh, but as the practical realist, you know, you you, you play stupid games, you're going to pay stupid prices. Um, these guys opted to become mercenaries. Um, you know, their 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 entire narrative is one of voluntary travel to. Ukraine for the purpose of joining mercenary forces uh, so they could be used to kill Russians. Um, they don't deserve uh, protection under the Geneva Convention. They, they are not prisoners of war. At least that's the, the Russian um, 
you know, in, in the Donetsk People Republic interpretation of the law. And when I take a look at things like this, ultimately, international humanitarian law uh, says at the end of the day, it's it's how the capturing party views you that really counts. So, you know, we can sit here and say, no, no, we interpret the law to be X, Y and Z. Uh, the Russians and the Donetsk People Republic interpret it to be another way. Um, the only thing I would say is if I were their lawyer, I would say that the Donetsk People's Republic has no jurisdiction over these people, that they belong in the jurisdiction of Russia because they were captured uh, near Kharkov, which is not part of the Donbass. Uh, therefore, it's a Russian responsibility, not, and Russia doesn't have the death penalty, um, so we shouldn't be talking about this. But that's, le- that's strictly legalities. At the end of the day, uh, from the Donetsk People's Republic, whether or not they kill these guys, they're going to kill somebody, probably these British, maybe the Moroccan. Um, you know, the Americans might be held back and given, you know, a life sentence or something used to barter uh, down the road. But, you know, laws and threats mean nothing unless you carry through. Uh, right now, there's thousands of mercenaries fighting for the Ukrainians. Um, many of them have already died. Many will continue to die. Some will be captured. Um, and I think, you know, you know, this is the Garland's former law enforcement official. Uh, one of the things that judges in society seek to do by passing down sentences is the deterrent value of the sentence. That is, by demonstrating harsh justice, you create a deterrent to people who might be tempted to break the law in the future. At least that's the theory. Um, And I would imagine that uh, the death penalty is the ultimate deterrence uh, for mercenaries. And if they actually carry it out, whether with these Americans, the British, the Moroccan or others, um, that this will have an impact on uh, on those mercenaries fighting right now because now they realize that um, they have three choices, fight and die, fight, get captured and die, or go home right now, run away. And um, one would think that uh, unless you're an absolute sociopath, um, run away sounds like a good option. Yeah, you know, the other thing is this, you know, I'm, I'm, as a person who opposes the death penalty, but I recognize that, Every place doesn't oppose the death penalty. And here's the bottom line. They are ex-soldiers. They knew going into this as mercenaries that it was likely, maybe probable, at least possible, that if they were captured, that they wouldn't be afforded the same rights as a soldier. But they know that because they're ex-soldiers. They put themselves in that position with full knowledge of the jeopardy they were placing themselves in. It's hard, Scott, for me to feel sorry for them, even though I oppose the death penalty. We got about forty seconds. Look, I, I'm on your, I'm on your side. I just, I'm just saying that, you know, I, yeah, I can't feel sorry. They knew what they were doing. They knew the consequences. I feel sorry for the mother. I feel yeah, right. Sorry for the fiance, and um, you know, maybe there's a, a, a solution that can be found uh, that has them eventually going home at some point. But they knowingly did what they did. And there must be a price to be paid. But John Kirby's position really comes from the arrogance of Americans. His point is these are Americans. I don't care why they're there. I don't care what they're doing. They're Americans. And how dare you threaten to execute Americans in your country? That that's what that's what I take away. And, and quickly, we got we got twenty seconds. Uh, any any word, any sighting of Malcolm Nance? And I ask this very seriously because I haven't heard a peep from him in the last couple of weeks. And not that you've been looking for him, Scott Ritter, but <laughs> any any word on where he is and what he's doing? I, I don't have any updates okay. on Malcolm Nance. Um, and on as far as Kirby goes. 
Uh, John Kirby, if you're listening to me, listen carefully. Show some humility. Be humble, because that's the only way you're going to save these guys' lives. To act with the arrogance that you're acting with right now, you're condemning them to death. Scott Ritter, well said. Thank you. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thanks. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Consortium News has a piece entitled, Robbed by Law Enforcement. People who have never even been charged with a crime can have their life savings taken away. That's civil asset forfeiture. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former CIA counterterrorism officer and a former senior investigator with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He became the sixth whistleblower indicted by the Obama administration under the Espionage Act, a law designed to punish spies. He served 23 months in prison as a result of his attempts to oppose the Bush administration's torture program. He's the host of Political Misfits and the author of this piece, John Kiriakou, as always, John, welcome back. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. So people really don't even have a clue about uh, asset forfeiture, civil asset forfeiture. John, why did this get your attention? Why is this such an issue for you? You know, to me, this this goes right to the core of our civil liberties, which we which we seem to be losing little by little by little over the years. Uh, and, and this is a particularly egregious kind of a loss of our civil liberties. What civil asset forfeiture is, is that the government, whether it's the federal government or state governments, 46 of them, uh, there are only four that protect these uh, these liberties. Uh, can just take your money and never charge you with a crime and never give you back your money. And in this piece, I, I put a whole bunch of recent examples. There were so many examples, I had to actually limit myself uh, just because of, of space reasons. But, uh, you know, these examples really, they appear to be absolutely outrageous and egregious. And really what they are is the norm. Well, it is because if you look at it, I've I've had um, a lot of experience with that with this, and I was trained in asset forfeiture um, by the federal government when I was in law enforcement. And it's interesting. This was back in the 90s, I think. And what they said was to the police, because I was the local police department, and they said, don't use it unless you have to, because if you do, we will lose it. But what we found is most of the stuff taken are small amounts of money taken from people by police departments. We had someone right here in Maryland in Howard, Howard County. A like 19 year old kid who was in college and he had um, I think it was in college. But at any rate, he was like a, um, a, a, a waiter. And at the end of the week, he had his money in the trunk. It was like eleven hundred bucks. And the cops came and they looked in it in it, and they said, found eleven hundred dollars in cash and they took it. And the only reason he got it back was because it went to the um, it, it got on the news and everyone asked. And then Howard County Police had, had to give them back. But it's not like they're grabbing drug money. They just grab random people's cash 
and keep it. And most people don't even know that this exists. You are absolutely right. And and it doesn't have to be vast amounts of money. In many cases, it is. But but it could be just the 1100 bucks from the waiter. I, I use one example. Or I write about one example in this piece where there's a guy who bid on a car on eBay. And, um, and he was the high bidder. So he decided to drive to Georgia to pay for the car. And he had money, uh, you know, cash to pay for this car. He was stopped by a cop for whatever reason. You know, he didn't signal when he changed lanes or whatever the reason was. And the cop um, asked if he could search the car. The guy said, sure, because he had nothing to hide. Although, never say <laughs> yes, you can search my car. Right. Never. Correct. So the cop searches the car and finds the money. Well, the guy said, yeah, I have this money because I was the high bidder for a car on eBay. I'm going down to pick up the car. And the cop put the money in his pocket. And in the police report, there was no mention of eBay. There was no mention of a car. The guy filed a suit to get his money back, and he couldn't. And the police just kept it. And that's really what happens. There's, there's another egregious uh, case where there was a DJ from Atlanta who's actually quite prominent in the music industry. He's worked with Beyonce and a whole bunch of A-list pop stars. And um, he was driving from Atlanta, his home in Atlanta, to his second home in Los Angeles. He was stopped uh, in Oklahoma City. And um, I, I apologize, Oklahoma County, which is Tulsa, Oklahoma. And the cop asked him what he was doing in Oklahoma. And he said, I'm driving from my house in Atlanta to my house in Los Angeles. I'm in the music industry. The cop says, that sounds suspicious. Why? Was it because he was black? That would be my guess. And so the cop said, I want to search your car. The guy said, no, you don't have any reason to search my car. I haven't done anything wrong. Now, this is a guy with no criminal history whatsoever. He had never been arrested, never been convicted of any crime. The guy's just driving across country like so many Americans do. So because he wouldn't let the cops search his car, they call a, a drug-sniffing dog. Well, they claim that the dog alerted. And uh, so then they went into the car and they found, I think it was 50000 or 150000 150000 in cash that he had in the car. And they confiscated the money. And they said, you know, essentially nobody should have that much cash. And the dog probably alerted on the money because the, the money probably smelled like marijuana. And so, you know, he filed a suit, but he never got his money back. One of the things that, I, that I'm quite uh, aware of is that, is that they say that because of the prevalence of drugs in this country, that if a drug-sniffing dog were to sniff just about anybody's pocket— Exactly right. And could go that, into a bank vault that they would hit because that's how prevalent drugs is in this country, and most money, most money is tainted by it. Let me add something else because I know of a case in, in Frederick, but let me add to something else. And it was, again, some people who did business. They had $27,000, and they did business, and they were going to the bank, to, right? But the bottom line is— what the bank did in this instance and what it does a lot, I mean, excuse me, what the government will do. So someone comes and like, here's the evidence. It's my money. And then the government will say, OK, let's negotiate. 
We'll give you back 50% of it. You've proven that it's your money beyond a reasonable doubt to a moral certainty, and they want you to negotiate as to how much of your money you're going to get back. This is just outright theft. And, John, uh, to, to Garland's point, with this whole war on drugs and individual police departments being able to use this money to fund their operations, this has become a profit center for police departments. Oh, yes, very much so. And not just local police departments, but also the federal government. I I have one example in this piece where uh, there was a a documentary filmmaker who flew in from Europe. He had $69,000 that he had put inside uh, the the case of a, a broken Xbox. And the reason he did that is because he was going to be making this documentary in some shady neighborhoods, is what he called them, uh, in New York. And what he did, as soon as he landed at JFK Airport, he went straight to Customs and Border Protection, and he declared the money. So when he declared the money, they said, what are you going to do with it? He said, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm using it to finance the film, and I have it in this Xbox because of these shady neighborhoods. They turned him over to DEA, and DEA seized the money. Well, this guy had the wherewithal to uh, hire an A-list attorney, so he, uh, he sued DEA. Uh, and said that they had essentially stolen the money because he did exactly as he was supposed to do, and he declared it immediately upon landing at JFK. So they said exactly what Garland just said. Well, we'll give you uh, a percentage of it back. 90%. And he said, no, I don't want 90%. So what they then did is they began an investigation of him, and they went into his bank records, and they said, oh, he has a pattern of depositing and withdrawing amounts of less than $10,000, which is the legal threshold uh, for IRS requirements. And that's called structuring. And if you're doing it to evade uh, reporting, then it's a felony. Well, he, he wasn't structuring. He's just buying things and depositing uh, money and doing what all of us do with our bank accounts. So um, they said, well, take the 90% or we're going to prosecute you for structuring. He said, bring it on. And uh, two weeks before they would have had to file the charges against him, they finally gave him his $69,000 back. But he said, not good enough. And he filed his suit against DEA and the Justice Department anyway. They ended up paying him $15,000, which was less than what he spent on the attorney, of course. But it was the principle of the thing. Somebody's got to draw a line. Assange put on suicide watch after Patel decision. According to his father, John Shipton says Julian Assange was stripped naked and put in an empty cell to prevent him from killing himself over the Home Secretary's decision to sign his extradition order, according to reporting by Joe Lauria. Your thoughts, John Kiriakou? Yeah, this is really grim. Uh, of course, Julian Assange is suicidal, not just because of Priti Patel's decision, but Julian Assange has been suicidal for many years. And, you know, when they put you in suicide watch in prison, it's even more humiliating than you might imagine. It'll make you more suicidal. So what they've done to Julian is they've stripped him naked. They've put him in a plain cell with nothing but a steel bunk that is attached to the floor, 
and a toilet, a steel toilet with no seat and a steel sink. And one of the four walls is a window. And they'll pay another prisoner 25 cents an hour, or in this case, you know, 25 pence an hour, to sit in a chair and just stare at your naked body 24 hours a day. They do it in in six-hour shifts so that you don't run into the wall headfirst and commit suicide that way. This is really awful. And it's not going to get any better if Julian is extradited finally and everybody finally realizes that these promises of not putting him in a in a secure unit or a, a solitary confinement, uh, that, that none of it was worth the paper it was written on. It's only going to get worse. And, and I might add, this is not Suicide Watch. This is a deliberate punishment every way they can to punish him and send the message out to anyone who considers exposing crimes by the empire. This is what you're going to get. That's exactly right. And, you know, his uh, Julian's father, John Shipton, and brother Gabriel went on to Berlin yesterday, uh, and they got a meeting with the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, which was kind of a big deal. And they're urging the German government to weigh in with the Americans and just drop this case. Uh, I, I think that probably won't happen, but, you know, we all should be doing everything that we can. John Kiriakou, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks so much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. And there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT has a piece by Glenn Dyson. As propaganda about a Ukrainian victory retreats is a split emerging in the West. During the Russian Civil War, the journalist Walter Lippmann observed the dilemma of propaganda. It had the positive effect of mobilizing the public for conflict, but the negative outcome of obstructing a workable peace agreement. Is this same dynamic at play in Ukraine? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a writer at the Polemicist.net and Counterpunch, author of Ukraine Negotiation Kabuki, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. As always, thanks for having me. So Lippmann argued that because the U.K. public had been promised victory, there was no political appetite for a reaching for reaching a diplomatic settlement. It seems as though a century later, Jim, little has changed. Well, it is exactly the same uh, dynamic that's at play, you know, and it, it is not just a a discrepancy between the propaganda and the reality. It's a discrepancy between factions in the various uh, governments and, and regimes that are that want different things and think they can do different things. So it's a very dangerous situation. They have created a propaganda construct, which was, first of all, that Ukraine is winning. They've, they have, they've kind of given up on that, but not, not entirely. Ukraine isn't quite winning, but they're not quite losing either. <laughs> and uh, they have definitely, you know, not given up at all on the uh, 
the insistence that Ukraine will win, that we will not let the Russians win, <laughs> and that we'll defeat the Russians, that we'll, we'll put them down in some way and push them back in some way, and that we just have to do that. So it's an, it's an impossible situation that they've put themselves in. Uh, they have to try to do one thing or the other. They have to acknowledge that Ukraine is going to be defeated and lose territory and Russia will get pretty much what it wants, or they're going to have to join the fight and try and destroy Russia. And they don't want to do either of those things, but they keep talking about both of them. So it's really a bizarre situation that's extremely, extremely dangerous. You know, uh, Jim, I've been thinking lately, I'll get your thoughts, although I have to uh, admonish you and uh, Wilmer when I don't understand why you're talking about, you know, the potential destruction of humankind when we really should be focusing on January 6th. But that being said, I will, you know, abandon the most important thing. There's a term they use in here, and it's just this is what's coming to mind now, and that is the term collapse, you know, because they've got this narrative and this narrative is kind of there. The, the, the neocons are running the narrative and the uh, Kiev government is running with the narrative and we all know what the narrative. I don't get into it. But at some point in reality, there comes a time when you can manage or, or you know, control through diplomacy or any number of ways how your narrative adjusts and changes. But when you hold on to a narrative that is this far from reality, there comes a time when there's a sudden collapse of that narrative, when either, and, and my suspicion is some kind of way, the Kiev government will collapse either through a coup or something will happen where there's, but what do you think of my thought, of my belief that at some point, and that's the dangerous point, I guess, that there's collapse, sudden wham, you can't say it anymore because this game is over. Well, I, I think there's a likelihood of a, of a military collapse on the Eastern Front, on the Donbass Front, and a breakthrough there. Although, you know, look, they're still shelling Donbass. They're shelling Donbass more than they ever have, because now they've got the better weapons. <laughs> the American weapons are helping them shell, shell the cities in Donbass, uh, in Donetsk. But they're shelling Donetsk. So at some point, given the, the methodical advance of the Russian forces and the, the LDR forces and the DNR forces, uh, they're going... There will probably be a collapse of the, of the Ukrainian front, and they'll be pushed way back, and hopefully the shelling of Donetsk would stop once and for all. But they're still fighting over that, okay? And what you have is a situation – now, will there be a collapse of, the, of, of Ukraine in general and of the Ukrainian government in general? Well, as some reason, nobody really wants that. I mean, what you have is a situation where, where this is what's the danger of it. I mean, as the Russians advance – and, and now they have to – they are advancing, and they have to advance and take more territory than they were talking about at the beginning because these territories that they've taken, Kyrgyzstan and Zebradesh, uh, I forget how to say it, you know, are not going back. They don't want to go back to Ukraine and Kiev. And you know, if they go into Odessa, it's, they're going to want to keep Odessa. So now they're going to be keeping more territory. So you're pushing – you're getting a situation where Kiev is going to be pushed into a smaller and smaller – is it going to collapse? Uh, the United States and NATO – First of all, Russia doesn't want to go in and take over the whole of Kiev. They don't really want to run Ukraine because it's a failed state. They don't want it's, it, it, it's right now. It's a war of the United States and the, and the EU. But you know, they may be pushed into a situation where that's kind of their only because otherwise, what the United States and NATO are going to do, they're going to put whatever the rump state of Ukraine that is left, the U.S. and NATO are going to pour weapons into it and keep the pressure on whatever territories are have been taken by the Russians or by the, you know, peoples of those oblasts. So you're creating a dynamic here, which is, which is, well, at least the collapse of 
Kiev or not, which could lead to the collapse of peace in the world for a long, long time. It's a very, very dangerous situation. And and some point, you know, in the, in the face of a pending collapse, even in the face of the pending collapse of the military front in the East, will NATO do something? Uh, in the face of the pending collapse of, of, of the Kiev government, what will NATO do? Who's going to take over the Kiev government? The fascists outright? Or is there, is there some other force that's not, not a fascist force and not a Zelensky force? I don't really see, see it, but, you know, it's, ex, it's just extremely dangerous. And there's a potential for intervention, kind of people feeling they have to intervene, whether it's the Russians or, the, or NATO, in a way that they really didn't want to. And uh, that's, what the, they, that's what Ukraine is counting on. Ukraine never thought it would win this battle against Russia. This guy, Arestovich, you know, said from the beginning of a you know, flip of him saying on Ukraine, we will start a war with Russia because we'll get Ukraine to the NATO to come in. We have to get NATO to come. That's our that's our purpose is to get NATO to come in to fight a war with Russia and destroy Russia. So, you know, how is that going to be reversed? There's too many opportunities in here, unfortunately, for people to to go down that road, for that to pop up as the as the alternative to collapse. And going further on in this piece, who should be blamed? The sudden, to Garland's point, the sudden shift from a victory to a defeat narrative demands that someone takes the blame for losing the war, reminiscent of Biden blaming Afghanistan's political leaders and its military for the situation in that country. The American leader has now begun blaming Ukraine for not heeding American warnings about the pending Russian attack. And then they talk about identifying new objectives. A new narrative also needs to reflect new objectives. Victory over Russia was a unifying objective within NATO, but now that seems to be changing. In defeat, the competing national interests are more difficult to contain, and unity subsequently fragments. Jim Cavanaugh. Well, uh, yeah, what is their goal here? What's the victory that they're seeking? What's the end game that will look like a victory for the West and not an embarrassing defeat for, for NATO and the West? And there is none. I mean, you know, you can't, because you know, the Ukrainians are saying, we're not going to give an inch of territory. We, we won't do that. Screw everybody who said we should give a little bit of territory, right? Uh, Henry Kissinger and, those, and the French and the Italians, we're not going to do any of that. So the, if Ukraine gives up, its ter- gives up some of its territory in Crimea and any of that, they've lost. And, you know, if the West exceeds to that, they've accepted defeat. And it's going to be very difficult for any Western politician to put themselves in that position. Certainly, Biden would be blamed, you know, whether it's his fault entirely or not. I mean, he's going to be blamed for it. He'll be, he'll be, it'll be pinned on, he'll, he'll have lost Ukraine, you know, like losing, losing China and losing Afghanistan, certainly after Afghanistan. So this is not going to, he'll be blamed for it. But there is no, you know, they, they, they can't, there's no story they can concoct that makes a, a defeat looks like a, look like a victory here. Well, Jim, I think their problem is not going to be Ukraine. Their problem is going to be, in, especially in Europe, internal uprisings that have already started. And that's where they're really going. They're going to the Ukraine's going to be the least of their problems. But let me add this. Um, Alexei Arestovich, the uh, mouthy advisor to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, has come over to Vladimir Putin's side. He actually said that Kiev is already a de facto member of the U.S. military bloc. And I'm thinking, hey, well, I guess he's aligning himself with Vladimir Putin now because that's exactly what Vladimir Putin said. Your thoughts? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. He said we're, we're the de facto. It doesn't make a difference whether the official let us in or not. We're the de facto member. EU, EU doesn't make any difference. We were a de facto member. We're now a member of this trimarium business, which, you know, so we have 50 countries who have sworn to us that they will not let us lose. Uh, and, you know, and, and that's the case. And this is, you know, Joe Biden said something today or yesterday about we're in a war situation. I mean, he's saying the United States is considering itself at war with Russia. You know, nobody voted for that. And, and he's got, but he, this is the situation. They're treating Ukraine as if it were a NATO member. And it's been doing, they've been doing that for the last eight years. Lithuania says prepared for Russian retaliation over Kaliningrad embargo doesn't expect military action. Russia has vowed to respond to Lithuania's decision to block sanctioned goods from the being delivered to uh, Kaliningrad via rail. Your thoughts on where this could go? How bad could this get, Jim Kavanaugh? Well, here's exactly the kind of thing. You know, this is the black swan thing. You know, uh, everybody's getting punched in the face. And, and, and we don't know where this is going to go. No, I don't think there's a need in any situation for Russia to respond in a kinetic military sense right away. They can uh, evade these sanctions by, by sea, which they have a lot of goods coming by sea. Anyway, but it's serious sanctions. It's not only rail now, it's road, and, it's road transport, truck transport. It, they're, they're saying we're going to increase the number of, of goods that are under sanctions. And it's a NATO country. So this is, again, this is a situation that's an escalation. And the, the, the NATO is treating themselves, Russia, as an enemy country on behalf of Ukraine. And but where does this go? I, this, the problem is nobody knows where this goes. This is thing that Russia has to figure out how it's going to react to this. It's going to react. It's going to react in some way that's going to hurt Lithuania and Lithuanians. And there's no way around that. It's going to get cold quickly. Yeah, I do know Lithuania gets a significant uh, portion of their electricity from Russia. I imagine that's going to be coming to a screeching halt. It's going to get cold quickly. And dark. Yeah, cold and dark. Yeah, they're going to go off the the grid, which is the Baltic grid that Russia is a part of and go into the Polish grid. But that's going to take a couple of years. You know, these are all things that it's obvious now that the sanctions are backfiring. And so and governments, as you say, in Eastern Europe, I think the Bulgarian government just went through, got dismissed. And a lot of this is the social anger at the cost of this paying for the Ukrainian war. So I don't know where this is going to go, but it's getting dangerous. And Lithuania is counting on the fact that Russia won't do anything because militarily because it's a NATO country. Who knows? Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Ariel Henry at the Summit of the Americas, The Cry in the Desert. This is from the paper uh, Haiti Liberté. 
difficult in this chronicle on the transition to pass over in silence the fabulous, useless trip for the Haitians of Prime Minister Ariel Henry to California. Why is this a cry in the desert? For insight, we turn to our next guest. She's with the Coordinating Committee of the Black Alliance for Peace, member of the Black Working Class-centered Ujima People's Progress Party in Maryland, founder of Liberation Through Reading and co-editor of the revolutionary African blog Hood Communist, Erica Ryan Keynes. As always, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So one really has to wonder, or two questions, why was Ariel Henry invited to the summit of some of the Americas? And then why did he go? Yeah, great question. Um, I think that we saw uh, a few folks raise that question. I know one of the reasons that uh, Black Lions for Peace, which I am the co-coordinator of the Haiti and America's team, uh, were, in, were doing counteractions in L.A. was primarily because, you know, the U.S. Uh, government decided to not allow Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua to attend um, because they they cited you know democracy. Um, but you know the question remains: Who voted for Ariel Henry? Um, so how is that democratic? So we see that there's a contradiction there that is like overwhelming, and this has been consistent with the U.S. in relation to Haiti, um, not allowing for Haiti to um, have complete sovereignty. It treats Haiti like, uh, you know, its own colony or one of its colonies um, with the core group and the OAS making decisions. And then um, Haitians here uh, in the U.S. primarily making a lot of decisions for Haiti receive a sort of contradictions that arise. So when you see uh, Ariel Henry at the Summit for Americas, you have to question what type of democracy is the U.S. calling for? And, you know, when you look at what he said there, you know, he what did he ask for? He, he asked for help bringing order and controlling criminal gangs and things like that. What he didn't ask for was independence. He didn't ask for sovereignty. He didn't ask for help for the people that are suffering economically. It was we have to bring these people in line and have order. But order from who? And how can you have order um, when you have no independence and sovereignty and democracy? That creates disorder. Right. And that's what we see has always been um, the result. I know uh, as a communist, one of the things that we discuss is, uh, you know, we see what continuous, um, you know, the, the non-allowance for sovereignty and the continuous sort of neocolonialization processes that the U.S. pushes in Haiti. We're also seeing that be the result of Afghanistan. Like, that is the conditions in which U.S. occupation leaves nations, um, you know, and it's a wonder what's going to happen to Ukraine in this sort of situation because the U.S. occupies these nations and then they pull out, um, you know. So it's, we have to look at Haiti as, as an example. And that's primarily why we focus um, on Haiti and the Americas because we see Haiti as the U.S., you know, like uh, – testing ground in a sense for not just the region, but a lot of their military actions and how they go about dealing with other nations and their relationships with other nations. When we see that Haiti is independent, but has no sovereignty, then we have the question, what does independence mean? What does flag independence mean, especially in that region? Talk a little bit about the comments that were made by the uh, Dominican 
president. Uh, he says, it is for me and for our government unjustifiable that this international community allows a state located in the middle of the American continent to see a large part of its territory controlled by criminal gangs. It's up to the international community to commit itself de uh, definitively to the Haitian people by becoming more involved and as a matter of urgency by working for their pacification and their definitive recovery. And he says the Dominican Republic has already done too much. In fact, she's already doing too much, way more than she can handle. Yeah. Um, well, there's <laughs> a little hypocrisy there because one could argue that the uh, Dominican government moves in the same in a sort of criminal way um, in regards to its citizens. Uh, but th again, that is the sort of uh, the stronghold that the U.S. has because a lot of what the Dominican pre president is espousing is the U.S. line. Um, and, and that's what we see Ariel Henry sort of leaning towards and leaning into, because they're not asking, again, for these nations to be sovereign or for any actual legitimate help right now, because Haiti is in a crisis, um, especially when we look at, you know, the what the U.S. is doing with Haitians here. Um, there, there is situations that are happening that they're not asking about. Like, did Ariel Henry ever address Title 42? So we have to, you know, really think about these things and what they're asking. Like, what does it mean that they're asking for help with criminal gangs? And what class and sector of people does that benefit? Yeah. And, and you know, I think in a way, um, paradoxically, it's kind of the best thing that Ariel Henry should go to this thing and should speak because it kind of exposes the contradictions. You know, if he were to stay home but still take the same, stay back in Haiti but still take the same positions, um, there would be some a certain element of, you know, legitimacy to him. And people would say, well, maybe after all, he is standing up for the Haitians or maybe he does want independence. But I think it's perfect for him to go there, for him to take that position so that all can see and people like us can point to it and say, there you go right there. The one thing he's not asking for is sovereignty or independence. Right, right, right. And I think, and, and also, um, you know, Haiti should be centered. Uh, that's why we, we, you know, center Haiti in the Black Alliance for Peace. Um, but Haiti should be centered. But I think what what his presence did, as you as you as you argued, is not actually center the plight of Haiti and what's happening in Haiti, but center a, a specific class need that I think that is not really being talked about. That is an alliance with uh, the U.S. and it should uh, make people question. Who voted for Ariel Henry? Because as we remember, with, this was the case of a lot of the strife that was happening um, towards the end of 2020 and the beginning of 2021 when Jovenel Moise was illegitimately staying as president and backed by the U.S. Um, up until his assassination. And then also with Ariel Henry being tied to that assassination, um, there, these are things that I think on a mainstream level, his presence should garner some introspection about. But I do also wonder how much normalization of the way the U.S. handles Haiti and the U.S.'s relationship with Haiti is being um, encouraged uh, with his presence. Uh, let me add this for people who don't know that um, Ariel Henry was tied to the um, the, the, the Jovenel Moise assassination. It is alleged by the prosecutor in Haiti that he literally spoke to one of the murderers 
for seven minutes on the night of Moise's assassination on the phone at the time one of the murderer, murderers was in the vicinity of the, um, you know, the mansion where he was killed. So, I mean, he's not just like in a distant manner tied to it. He's tied to it in a way that one would have to suspect that. He's on the phone saying, are you there yet? Yeah, is, it done? <laughs> is, he, is, he, is he still alive? You know, bring me an ear. I'm just throwing it out there. But at any rate, your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it's it's complete. It's it's really it's it's wild to think of, right? Because um what you know, the US the way the US deals with dictators and and especially the 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 refusal to allow Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela to attend um and then you see these type of characters that they allow and really you have to question um what exactly is the u.s trying to accomplish in that region and it also makes you um makes, uh you know push for the sea life zone of peace and all of these you know the alma and all of these other entities that are calling for self-sovereignty i mean it, it really gives us a stronghold to stand on and, and support and solidarity with these other nations that are calling for it because the u.s and in trying to extend uh, Western hegemony, um, is doing is making a, a bunch of you know moves that are very very uh, that are going to be very consequential for the for the residents of Haiti. And when we look at you know the shift that is happening, um, we really cannot forget about Haiti being central um, because it means that so long as the, the that region is shifting more to the left. The U.S. is going to attempt to have a stronger stronghold and a tighter grip on Haiti. There was another piece in uh, Haiti Liberté, uh, Cuba, Haiti, the Helms-Burton Act and the crime of insubordination. And I thought this piece was very good in providing the broader historical context of why Haiti is being treated in the hemisphere, along with Cuba, uh, as it is. You want to speak to this piece? Yeah. Uh, one of the things when, when I saw the piece, I, I was thinking about Gerald Horn. He has a piece, um, um, he has a book on Cuba. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he makes the same same conclusions, that it was necessary, like the, the reason that the U.S. has occupied um, Haiti for as long as it has is because it cannot have another Cuba. And being so close, uh, the relationship that the the Cuba has with Haiti is being so close that has always terrified <laughs> the U.S. Um, so that the crime of so the crime of insubordination, um, yeah. When I was reading it, it made it made it made that aspect of the book make more sense to me. And going going back to the other piece, talking about the situation in Haiti should be at the center of this forum, the the summit for some of the Americas, that Haiti should have been the priority concern for Joe Biden. Unfortunately, uh, it was it was almost just summarily dismissed. Yeah. Well, obviously it was going to be dismissed because the way that he has dealt with Haiti mm-hmm. in his first year calls, calls for that. Uh, you know, I spoke with, I spoke about his, um, his full support <laughs> and uh, vehemently, defense of uh, Moise, even though that was a very unconstitutional stay. Um, and then uh, with with the earthquake, the handling of the earthquake, sending Southcom instead of any actual real help. Uh, the, so the way that the U.S. deals with Haiti, um, 
even with the Title 42 and the what I think uh, Jamila Pierre wrote about over 700,000 um, <laughs> deportations mm-hmm. uh, in just one year. So that, that you know, it, it, it's, the, Haiti has never been a priority for the U.S. I think Biden is quoted as saying that if Haiti was to just fall into the ocean, it would make a difference. Um, so it's never been a priority for um, Biden. So I think it's of the utmost importance that it becomes a priority for us on the left. Yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll put it like this. In the long run, the support that Moise got from Biden, I don't want that kind of support <laughs> because that didn't turn out well. No, not at all. Let me ask you quickly. Uh, we have about about a minute. I've I've read in different books that one of the things that really turned the United States against Haiti in terms of current time was when Duvalier first became president of Haiti, that he was leaning socialist and the United States was afraid that they couldn't have a socialist-led government in the hemisphere. We've got 30 seconds. Is is there any validity to that? You know who speaks about that is— uh, the host of uh, This is Revolution, Pascal Robert, um, mm-hmm. he makes a good uh, argument for that. I think he even suggested a book, uh, but I can't, the name slips to me, but that is the first time that I've heard that. Okay, okay. Well, thank you very much. We greatly, greatly appreciate your time. As always, we appreciate your analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank you, as always, uh, Erica. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is in Iran for talks on boosting cooperation. He arrived in Iran yesterday for talks on boosting trade and energy cooperation as the two countries grapple with Western economic sanctions. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist. Journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So according to uh, France 24, Tehran and Moscow both have huge oil and gas reserves but are constrained by sanctions that limit their ability to export their output. What are you making out of Lavrov in Iran meeting with Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi. Well, it's funny how uh, France 24 uh, is spinning this because uh, the reality is Iran and Russia, both of them are pumping their gas and oil at the maximum capacity. And uh, so they are basically, you know, don't have more ability to 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 export. Uh, and, and all the customers across the world are buying it. Uh, at cut rate prices as as Russia is delivering to anybody that will take it um, and the world is taking it. So that's one thing. The other thing about this visit 
is, uh, you know, this, they had a press conference at the end of uh, the visit and Mr. Lavrov and uh, his counterpart, the foreign affairs minister of uh, Iran, and they announced that they are renewing, uh, working to renew uh, their cooperation uh, deals uh, that they had signed uh, 15 years ago. This uh, a reminder to our listeners comes after, of course, China signed a 25-year uh, strategic cooperation deal with Iran. And also today, the first train coming from uh, eastern China is uh, heading towards Iran. This comes after uh, last month, the first uh, train did the north to south corridor from uh, the coast of Iran to uh, St. Petersburg. So we can see clearly that the there's a triangle now uh, running most of the economy corridor in uh, Asia, which is China, Russia, and Iran. And finally, uh, of course, they both uh, discussed uh, in the press conference, uh, the two foreign ministers, the fact that they uh, spoke about the uh, moves of uh, the Zionist colony, that are destabilizing the region, their attack on um, the Damascus uh, airport, which uh, today the Syrian government announced that it will be coming into back into um, service starting tomorrow. Uh, and uh, the, uh, you know, the whole situation in Syria with Turkey, uh, hoping that they will have a trilateral meeting between Turkey, Iran and Russia in the next uh, few days to uh, discuss the situation in Syria. The optics of all of this, in terms of this photograph with in France 24, it is of uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov with uh, Iranian President Raisi. Uh, that to me shows a lot of uh, of goodwill and favor between the two countries, uh, because it's not president to president; it's foreign minister to president. Um, your thoughts. Uh, as opposed to a picture with uh, Hossein Amir uh, Abdoualian, um, and I know I just butchered his last name, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they did have obviously a press conference. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the two foreign ministers. But as you as you rightly pointed out, the president of Iran, um, you know, hosted the foreign minister when he arrived. So it's it's clear a signal of the stature of uh, Russia to Iran. And they also spoke about a another visit uh, to be arranged between the two presidents because, uh, you know, just at the beginning of the year, uh, President Raisi visited Moscow and, uh, and had a, a, you know, a face-to-face meeting with President Putin. And uh, so they're now planning a second uh, presidential summit. Uh, and so we can see clearly that things are rolling out uh, in terms of solidification of the military alliances that are being built now in Western Asia. Uh, Russia doesn't have uh, the two players that it was maneuvering with, um, and here I mean by the Zionist colony and uh, Turkey, uh, in its balance of power in Western Asia are now fully um, you know, aligning with this new military alliance that uh, Biden is uh, supposedly going to crescent when he arrives uh, mid-month. Uh, 
One of the other things I, I noticed, one of the statements that was made by Lavrov is, if the Americans act in a realistic manner, we are hopeful to reach a final agreement in the near future. Personally, it seems to me like that's just kind of a performatory, performative thing that you say, especially in light of recently, uh, form, recently former Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko, when asked about the Minsk agreement, said, admitted, he said, it basically, it was just a ruse. We just did that to hold the Russians off so that we could rebuild our military to confront them at a later date. That being said, I think both parties, both Russia and Iran, recognize that the United States is not an honest partner. And I think that's why he said, if the Americans act in a realistic manner, which they won't, <laughs> I, I added that in, then we can reach a final agreement late. Yeah, and this is uh, true for the Iranian nuclear deal, which both uh, foreign ministers discussed in their uh, press conference. Uh, the United States uh, keeps on delaying because ultimately this whole um, you know, nuclear deal to the powers in the United States from in the beginning was only a delay tactic to attempt to regroup uh, imperial power in Western Asia before any confrontation with Iran. And as we see, the United States is out of time, even though that is attempting to bring together a military alliance against Iran, uh, it's too late. Uh, the uh, balance of power globally, not only in Western Asia, has, has dramatically shifted. The United States is not to be trusted, and everybody knows that, even its own allies worry that uh, at any moment uh, they could be um, discarded as uh, and and thrown to the wolves there's another very interesting rt report us helps israel prepare for military quote unquote escalation military exercises simulated renewed unrest along israeli's northern border amid a territorial dispute with lebanon and you know late to me whether it's Ukraine, Taiwan, or Israel, the U.S. seems to be to be playing war games, and this is not a game. Oh, yeah. I mean, these are some of the most touchy issues on the global scale that could uh, very easily trigger, trigger a World War III and, and get out of the hand in terms of being, um, you know, kind of uh, contained within regional uh, perspectives. So... Right now, uh, as the United States is attempting to form this alliance, this military alliance, which is in reality already formed, has already been existence, and and rattle sabers in front of uh, uh, Syria, Lebanon, and uh, Iran, uh, I think uh, they will have a hard time delivering on this bark, uh, and and the axis of resistance has a lot of uh, scores to settle whether it's uh, Hezbollah with, with some of its members being killed by the Israelis, quote-unquote, by accident uh, a year ago, or the Syrian and Iranian uh, martyrs uh, and the attacks on, on the airport, as we saw. Those are all scores to be settled. Uh, this is without even touching the issue of the gas extraction uh, from um, the Lebanese and Palestinian waters. Uh, which Hezbollah's uh, Secretary General promised that if uh, Lebanon is not allowed to uh, extract gas from the waters, then the Zionist colony will not be either. So we have many things that are could trigger a regional uh, war. And the question is, will the axis of resistance wait 
for the Americans to land the first blow after the departure of uh, Biden uh, mid next uh, mid month, uh, and or will they trigger it before uh, the Americans choose the date? How is this dynamic the um, you know uh, this this dynamic affected by the um what was it called? The Solomon's Accord. You know, these um, leaders of various Arab states getting involved with a program to um, normalize uh, uh, relations with Israel. I know that was going on, but then we've had the Shireen, Shireen Abu Akla shooting and some other things that has kind of infuriated the Muslim world. What's what are, what's what are the the states of what's the state of the reaction on on the street to the normalization of um, uh, you, you know, to that whole program that was going on. Yeah, I mean, look, the normalization of uh, relations between these uh, vessel kingdoms and uh, Israel, the public uh, relation being made, uh, is definitely destabilizing these countries. And the United States is having to increase its military uh, saber-rattling. And as we saw both uh, the United States with the Zionists had their military exercises in um, Western Africa, North Africa, uh, in their areas surrounding Algeria, just uh, unfolding in the last few days. And before that, a few weeks ago, the Zionists with some of their, um, you know, other vessels in the region did the exercises in Western Asia. And so they will need to deliver on protecting these vessels because the vessels are getting weaker. Uh, the population doesn't have, um, you know, any more belief in in any of the propaganda that's coming out of these uh, monarchies. Um, and by doing this normalization, they actually weaken these vessels. And the next few weeks, as things unfold, uh, we will really test. Who has the population and the streets in in Western Asia and North Africa on their side? You mentioned, I think it was yesterday, as we were talking about uh, Biden's upcoming trip to the region, that you were, I think, expressing the position that things were going to break out either right before he gets there or right after he leaves. If you could elaborate on that, uh, elaborate on that a little bit. So right now in the whole region, all the files are put on pause and it's all, uh, there's too many things that are connected, whether it's the uh, Turkish invasions of North Syria and North Iraq, the Saudi war in, uh, an Emirati war in Yemen, and or the uh, Israeli incursions in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and attacks on Iran. These are all connected and um, you know, so none of the players, let's say Hezbollah alone or in Lebanon or the Syrian government in Syria or Iran in itself or the resistance in Iraq can take a decision on any of their own files without consulting with everybody else. And similarly, when we're talking about the, the vessels of the empire, Turkey, uh, the Zionists, the Gulf states, and now all of these um, you know, threads have been too tangled and anyone that pulls on any of these threads will trigger a reaction in the in the rest of the uh, region so um the question is there would this stalemate the only 
path forward is confrontation. And it's uh, what we only have to wait for is uh, will the axis of resistance trigger something before all the, uh, you know, little pieces have been moved by the Americans as they wish before the arrival of Biden? Or uh, will they actually wait for the attack by the Americans after Biden uh, to maybe gain some uh, credibility or, or support within their population as, as not being the instigators of a war. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. Thank you very much. You are listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. And there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT has a story written by Scott Ritter, nuclear Ukraine, arming Kiev with the world's most dangerous weapons would be a disaster. Former Polish foreign minister and current European parliament member Radoslaw Sikorski has suggested that the West should provide Ukraine with nuclear weapons in order to, quote, defend its independence, end quote. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. So Scott writes, Sikorsky's reasoning was grounded in a fundamentally flawed understanding of the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, which sealed Ukraine's accession to the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. Ukraine did not lose security when it gave up its Soviet-era stockpile of nuclear weapons. Scott talks about had they kept them, that would have sent them down a very, very perilous path. Your thoughts, Mark Schloboda? Yeah, okay, so the former Polish foreign minister, Radoslaw Sikorski, has suggested this. His reasoning is grounded in that he's a nutter, that he says lots of really insane things, Um, and one of them being that the West should just hand uh, the Kiev regime, which has state-armed and funded neo-Nazis among its military and and ranks and and among its uh, government, uh, and that would make everything better. Well, first of all, of course, it would be a huge violation of the non-proliferation treaty. Not that that has stopped Western powers from uh, breaking the non-proliferation treaty before uh, France and other Western countries, after all, did help Israel develop the nuclear weapon. But um, it would almost certainly spark nuclear war. Um, the United uh, Russia remarked uh, during their uh, list of factors that led to their military intervention the fact that uh, Zelensky said that the Ukraine might go about seeking nuclear weapons, and there seems to be some evidence that they were starting a nuclear program. The Budapest Memorandum was uh, exactly that. It was a general 
document uh, with regards to former Soviet countries that were not the legal successor to the Soviet Union, i.e. Russia, uh, that they would give up their nuclear weapons in return for some vague security and other guarantees. Um, the United States itself has commented before that the Budapest Memorandum was not legally binding. Um, and they did this while they were breaking the Budapest Memorandum, uh, first in uh, launching sanctions against Belarus years ago already. It, they put out an opinion that the Budapest Memorandum was not binding and that they were allowed to sanction Belarus, which uh, that type of economic uh, interference, that type of economic aggression was forbidden by the Budapest Memorandum. It, included in the Budapest memorandum is a um, also a discussion of you know not interfering in these countries domestic political affairs I'm not an expert okay I am but Victoria Newland handing out cookies uh, during a insurrection and encouraging protesters uh, to overthrow the Ukrainian government and providing all sorts of support before, during, and after for that butch also would seem to be a violation of the Budapest Memorandum. So the Budapest Memorandum was violated first and second and in third place uh, by uh, the United States. Um, not that that would be an excuse for uh, Kiev uh, to develop or to acquire nuclear weapons either. Um, there is actually a lot of costs involved in maintaining a nuclear deterrent. And um, certainly in the 1990s, the Ukraine uh, has, did not have the capabilities either to safeguard or to effectively use a nuclear weapon, either uh, even as a deterrent. And the economic and political course in the country from 1992 to today gives no indication that they were capable of um, uh, maintain, uh, developing or maintaining uh, such a control system either. So the, the whole thing is kind of moot. And despite Sikorsky's suggestion, I do not seriously believe that anyone in the West seriously would consider, certainly no government in the West, would seriously consider arming uh, Kiev with nuclear weapons. Uh, well, you know, in, in reference to the uh, Budapest Memorandum not being legally binding to the United States or uh, uh, to the U.S., I don't know if you've read the rules-based uh, international order, which doesn't exist, so you can't really read it. But if it did, it would say that no memorandum or anything else is legally binding to the U.S. empire because the U.S. empire supersedes everything on Earth and in space. But that being said— Radislaw, whatever his name is, to me, it, it, it demonstrates the old principle of, about a team of horses can only run as fast as the slowest horse, right? And when I look at Poland, I think an alliance of nations is only as sane as the craziest nation. And I think that applies here. All you got to do is read his wife's stuff and Applebaum. You read this guy's stuff and you say to yourself— these people are nuts, and so, therefore, NATO has to be nuts because it can only be as sane as the craziest people there, and voila, there's the craziest people, Mark. 
I, I think it's certainly take a, a, a worth looking uh, when you consider anything that Radislaw Sikorsky says ever um, <laughs> that you consider who his wife is and that it is indeed Anne Applebaum and that, yes, they are a bunch of neocon nutters um, and to take everything they say with about a ton of salt. Al Jazeera reports a Russian oil refinery near Ukraine says it was hit by drone attack. The refinery's management says operations were suspended after a drone attack targeted infrastructure. Can you give us some insight into what's going on here, Mark Schlaboda? Yeah, uh, part of the ongoing conflict uh, between the Kiev regime and Russia has both countries targeting uh, each other's um, resource base. Uh, you know, and uh, fuel, uh, you know, whether for gasoline, diesel um, or, you know, energy in general is certainly has been one of those targets. Um, and uh, the regime in Kiev has targeted several of Russia's um, oil refineries, uh, facilities. Um, and in this latest attack, uh, they used a foreign produced drone, a Western produced drone. Um, they were not able to hit the refinery, but they did hit some of, or at least one of the tanks where oil was kept. And, and you know, uh, it was not, say, a catastrophic strike, but certainly the Russian government lost uh, whatever uh, was in that storage uh, tank uh, in terms of, of oil. Now, the Russian government has called this, has referred to this, among other things, as an act of terrorism. Uh, that's nonsense, because Russia has been destroying Ukraine's uh, oil refineries and facilities, too. In fact, the word came out just this week uh, from the Kiev regime authorities that Russia has destroyed every oil refinery uh, in Ukraine. So fair is fair. I mean, if, if Russia's targeting, uh, you know, uh, whether you support uh, the regime in Kiev or not, you certainly cannot say that, uh, you know, it's uh, okay for Russia to do and, and not for the regime in Kiev to strike back. Uh, they have certainly have not been as successful. Uh, we did see them uh, – just in the last week, also use uh, supposedly a U.S. manufactured uh, switchblade, a, a suicide bomb, a drone, uh, to attack an oil platform, a Russian oil platform in the Black Sea. Now, that has the potential for uh, wide scale, or sorry, it was a gas platform, um, a gas platform in the Black Sea. Uh, that has the potential for wide scale environmental damage, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, blowing up gas platform in, in, in the ocean uh, could lead to catastrophic problems with the Black Sea, which already has a very particular and fragile ecosystem. So certainly you could argue that that was um, perhaps not the smartest or most considerate move. But I would expect to see future Ukrainian uh, Kiev regime attacks on other such uh, Russian um, oil refineries, facilities. And uh, at this point, it's, you know, it's a war and that's what's going to happen. Doesn't that also kind of imply, if you're Russia, that at some point maybe um – Ukraine shouldn't have access to the Black Sea so that they can shoot at various and sundry assets there, if you know what I'm saying. Yes, it would. And we have seen similar. <laughs> there was um, attacks on Snake Island and 
the UK, or sorry, the Kiev regime announced that they had sunk a Russian tug earlier this week with a uh, harpoon, a U.S. supplied harpoon anti-ship missile. Now, congratulations, you sunk a tug. Um, great shot. I'm not quite sure that spending a harpoon missile is cost effective at taking out a tug. They're pretty uh, expensive missile. Uh, but that being said, it certainly provides uh, the Kremlin uh, with the impetus to take what is left of the Kiev regime's Black Sea coast, meaning Nikolaev and Odessa, to prevent such attacks, either with anti-ship missiles or uh, drones launched from the area. Uh, yes, uh, even if the Kremlin were inclined to, say, halt uh, or uh, otherwise return to diplomatic uh, negotiations once the entirety of the Donbass is liberated, such actions by Kiev and by the West that arms them practically guarantees that Russia will have to take the southeast coast uh, of Ukraine, to which, with some family in Odessa, I say thank you. Military Times reports, and we've got about two minutes, House lawmakers yesterday offered a new and conflicting plans for defense spending next year, teeing up intense congressional debate in the coming months over the right level of military funding for 2023. Uh, Biden has uh, asked for $773 billion, a 4% increase, but that's being considered a floor for the discussion, Mark Sloboda. Let's face it. Both, neither the Democratic nor the Republican Party has any intention of decreasing military spending. Um, any fights they may have about the budget have mostly to do with partisan uh, ship over who is getting credit for the increase in spending um, or, you know, who uh, it's it simply, uh, you know, petty partisan attacks and that the initiative is coming from the, uh, the president. When President Biden sent, uh, you know, a requested military budget, uh, the, the Pentagon as well, to the Congress this year, what did they do? In reaching a rare bipartisan consensus, they agreed to send more than was requested. Mm -hmm. Right mm -hmm. there, there. Uh, this is the unfortunate reality. There is no political climate uh, or impetus in the U.S. To spend at less. the moment, and yeah, to spend less. Right. Um, they there is has been for decades now a push to spend more mm -hmm. and it is coming from both parties. I think the American people need to suffer economically more in order for that political change to happen. But unfortunately for them, that's where it looks like things are heading. So this may not be the same time around next year. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We 
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is an interesting piece in Mint Press entitled Meet UEA PAC, the new Wall Street-backed super PAC funding pro-Israel black Democrats. I wonder... If we are so alarmed by the Clinton-backed fiction we now call Russiagate, how concerned should we be about a Zionist-backed involvement in our elections? For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He is an author and journalist working for peace and social justice. He writes extensively about U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East with a focus on Palestine. His latest book is entitled Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir. Robert Fantina, as always, Robert, welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm always happy to be here. So this Mint Press piece continues, presenting itself as empowering the black community, a new political action committee with corporate and pro-Israel ties, hopes to spend millions to defeat progressives. And one of their primary focuses right now is uh, Democratic Representative Rashida Tlaib. The group says it plans to spend a million dollars in supporting or in advertising to to bolster her opponent. A- am I right, Robert, when I try to draw or when I draw the parallel between the Clinton-backed fiction of Russiagate and Russia's involvement in our elections and what's happening here? You're absolutely right. We have to look at the fact there were there was rumors and innuendos that Russia was doing something to influence the U.S. election in 2020. And yet there is, is documented, very public information about how Israel influences U.S. elections every single year that there's an election, mid-year, midterm elections, presidential elections, whatever it is. Uh, APEC, which is the main lobbying uh, arm of Israel and its uh, various minions, spend millions and millions of dollars to influence elections and to elect people who will be sympathetic to the Israeli cause. They're not doing this to elect people who will uh, help the poor in the United States. They're not doing this to help the marginalized people of color in the United States. They're not doing this to help uh, people in places like Flint, Michigan, who don't have drinking water. They're doing it simply for the benefit of Israel. So the fact that there are rumors that Russia uh, influenced the election in 2020 or tried to, and the documented facts of Israel influencing every election— it's just ludicrous to to look at uh, at Russia when the the elephant in the room is Israel. The other thing is, this is the Democratic Party. This is the t- same party that went out on a limb and said that a Russian company that has never in any way been officially tied to the Russian government running um, literally pictures of Jesus and Satan arm wrestling and pictures of a cartoon buff Bernie Sanders. Those things uh, influenced an election. But uh, quiet as a mouse, when another country, Israel, puts literally millions of dollars out and comes out and says, we are doing this to influence the, the representatives of that country. We are doing this to influence the election. And might I add, APAC has never had to fill out a FARA, FARA form. They literally have put people in jail for violating the FARA uh, 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 um, 
uh, statutes, and Israel, I mean, APAC doesn't have to do it. Because APAC gets around it in some, some uh, technicality. They don't actually donate money. They just funnel money. So it's, 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 uh, it's very uh, nebulous, and it's certainly uh, not at all honest and above board. But U.S. government officials are willing to overlook that because it's Israel, because they don't want to bite the hand that feeds them. When it's time for their re-elections, they know they can put their hand out, and Israel will fill it with money because they do what Israel tells them to do. They don't do what their constituents tell them to do. They do what the lobbyists tell them to do. And the pro-Israel lobbies are among the strongest in the country. What about, and, and this is my take on this, the Urban Empowerment Action Pact, the UEA, is nefariously using the relationship between the Jewish community and the African-American community to promote the interests of Israel. And I think part of this has to do with they're wanting to use that as a cover because if anybody questions their motives, oh, what are you, anti-Semitic? How dare you? The Jews and blacks have had a relationship since the 1940s and and all of that garbage um, that they use as as part of their cover. And unfortunately, they— Boy, I was going to say something really bad here. They can find individuals to carry their water. I'll put it that way. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what we're going to say. <laughs> we won't go there. But yes, and the, the fact the Urban Empowerment Action Pack, doesn't that sound really uh, like something that people want to get involved in? Uh, there's, there's so many problems in the inner cities that this is something to assist them. No, it's a lie. Uh, and if you oppose that, not only are you anti-Semitic, you'd be accused of, are you also racist against blacks? Mm-hmm. Why are you opposing the Urban Empowerment Action Pact? The, the link between uh, black activism and uh, pro-Israel, any pro-Israel movement, is uh, mainly forged with money, as we're seeing with the Urban Empowerment Action, Action Pact. The Black Lives Matter movement and pro-Palestinian movements are, uh, are in solidarity with each other. They're united. They've taken strength from each other. They've advised each other because they recognize that they are both being oppressed by uh, a colonial nation that wants to keep them down and not grant them, them equal rights uh, for blacks in the United States and Palestinians living in Palestine under Israeli occupation. So any th- – this talk about, and it's mentioned in, in this article, about uh, allegiances between uh, pro-Israel uh, people and uh, uh, advocates of, of black rights is just, it's fictional. Uh, it used to exist decades ago, hasn't in uh, 50 years, and they're trying to buy it back now with this uh, UEA pack. And what's really terrible about it is here's a pack that's saying to black people, we're going to use our money to choose which black person represents you. And when you look at the main contributor, a guy, uh, his last name's Loeb, L-O-E-B, 
He's donated in the past mostly to Republican candidates, Mike Garcia, Kevin McCarthy, uh, uh, Burgess Owens. So here's a guy who donates to Republicans, Republicans, Republicans. He says, hey, you know, I'm a Zionist. And it's like, oh, wait, looks like the, uh, the, the, the Democrats got a few black people that may not go along with everything I want in Israel. Let me throw some money over there, too. It has nothing to do with ideology. It's, it's actually, to me, it's abuse of democracy. It's usurpation of democracy in the black community. And I agree with that because the, these donors, Loeb and the others, recognize that uh, the Demo- they've lost the Democratic Party that for so many years, uh, Republicans and Democrats disagreed on most things, but they were lockstep in agreement on supporting a complete support of Israel. That has changed. More and more Democrats are speaking about Israeli apartheid. They're opposing uh, funding of the Iron Dome. They're calling out Israel for human rights abuses. So uh, this, this new organization and its major donors want to bring the Democratic Party back into the apartheid fold, and they're using money to try to do that. It'll be interesting to see how these various uh, candidates are fair uh, in, the, in the upcoming election. And also, it's interesting to me that they're doing this in Michigan, open primary. They're doing it in Ohio. They did it in Ohio, not the same pack, but a similar one to Nina Turner. That's how. That's one of the main ways that Nina Turner lost uh, as she ran uh, for the 11th con- congressional district in Ohio because uh, the Ohio has an open primary. They did it in Georgia to Cynthia McKinney a number of years ago, open primary. So, uh, what, so what that means is they is that Republicans can cross over and vote in the vote for a Democratic candidate during the primary in order to impact what Democrat moves into the to the general election. And this is a huge, huge issue that unfortunately too many African Americans don't really understand how the community and why the community is getting played. And it is getting played, unfortunately. And the, these open primaries allow people from the opposing party, as you mentioned, to vote for the weakest candidate. Mm-hmm. So the Republicans can vote for the weakest candidate, and then that person gets the nomination and runs against a stronger Republican candidate. Now, uh, Rashida Tlaib is very popular in her district. I don't know how much she has to worry about. Uh, she should, everyone should be concerned, certainly. And no one can take their renomination for granted. But... Uh, there needs to be more, uh, not only accountability, but more, more transparency, um, transparency, mm-hmm. transparency about what's happening here. That, that who is funding these campaigns, and then why are they funding them? These, these, this uh, UEA pack isn't getting five and ten dollar donations from grassroots people who are working every day or or, or getting by on unemployment. It's coming from millionaires from outside of the state and billionaires outside of the state. Are these the people that uh, the voters in Michigan, Ohio, and other places uh, want to choose their candidates? You know, the other thing, they've got some other pack, and that pack is focusing on um, protecting incumbents, right? And Nancy Pelosi, though I disagree with this, says, you know, we got to protect incumbents. We're doing all this. They changed the rules to protect incumbent. And now it certainly appears like... 
some incumbents are more important than others. We got two minutes. Yes, uh, the incumbents who are going to vote the way Nancy Pelosi wants them to vote, and Rashid uh, Rashid Talib is not one of them, uh, need to be protected. Those that don't, that don't toe the party line, which is Zionist and moderate, uh, they're not looking at things like uh, uh, police reform or canceling student debt. Those are the people, the incumbents, that need, according to Nancy Pelosi, to be reelected. Not those who are standing up for civil rights and human rights in the United States and around the world. Uh, Bakari Sellers is another one, and Sellers is a good, apt name for him. He's playing in this as well. He's getting funded through this as well. This is a very, very nefarious, underhanded, and again, they can always find some folks for a few dollars uh, who will who will carry carry their water. Robert Fantina, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. My pleasure as always. You're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Belgium returns remains of assassinated Congolese leader Patrice Lumumba, but what about justice? Belgium has returned a gold-crowned tooth of Patrice Lumumba to his family. However, activists point out that there has been no accountability or justice for his brutal assassination following what they describe as a Western-backed coup in 1961. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He holds the John J. and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So over six decades after his assassination, Belgium has repatriated the mortal remains of Congolese independence leader and prime minister Patrice Lumumba. Belgian Prime Minister Alexander de Croo presented his gold-crowned tooth to his family at a ceremony in Brussels on Monday. In a horrifying admission in 1999, Gerard Sauté not only confirmed his role in the assassination, but added he had stolen and kept two of Lumumba's teeth and fingers, quote, as a type of hunting trophy, end quote. Uh, your thoughts on this now as these, uh, at least the tooth, has been given to the family. And I find it interesting that they call it a Western-backed coup, not mentioning the CIA, as many believe the CIA was behind his— in fact, many say that Frank Carlucci was one of those behind his assassination. Well, you are correct per usual. In fact, the role of the United States is so notorious that the CIA station chief at the time, speaking of Larry Devlin, wrote a book boasting of his complicity 
in this blood-stained episode, that is to say the murder of Congolese leader Patrice Lumumba some six decades ago. You should also know that as a result of the congressional legislation mandating more release of records concerning the November 22nd, 1963 assassination of U.S. President John F. Kennedy, as part of the tranche of documents that are flooding out of Washington, more documents are being released that shed light on U.S. foreign policy towards Africa in general and towards Congo in particular. Indeed, if you look at the recently published book, White Malice, which has new nuggets of information about the assassination of Lumumba, if you check the footnotes, you'll see that a lot of the records are emerging from this uh, tranche of documents from the JFK assassination investigation. Listeners should also take a historical perspective with regard to what has befallen the Congo, not only since the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, but before then. Recall that in the late 19th century, the Belgian monarch, King Leopold, basically said that I rule the Congo, says King Leopold, not Belgium. This is my private preserve. Interestingly enough, he was assisted in this deviltry by the U.S. emissary to Congo, speaking of Henry Sanford. That name may ring a bell with some of your listeners because the town of Sanford, Florida, where the martyr Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman a decade or so ago, was named after one Henry Sanford. Not only that, but at that particular time in the late 19th century, the Dixiecrats, the Southern Democrats in Congress, were looking for a landing place to deport uh, black Americans, newly liberated from enslavement. And the idea was to send us all back to the Congo, believe it or not. And that plan, for what it's worth, barely failed. But the United States is implicated uh, even more with regard to the depredations visited upon the Congo in the run-up to the Lumumba assassination, because you should know that as King Leopold was digging his claws into the Congo, at the same time, you had the rise of the automobile industry and a good deal of the rubber that was used for tires was coming by dint of forced labor of Congolese, forced labor necessarily being a euphemism for slavery, and as well, a genocide inflicted upon those who refused to labor for free. If not genocide, you had legs chopped off, hands chopped off, uh, etc. Not only that, but in parts of the Congo, you also had a substantial elephant population. And what happens is that pianos were becoming something of a household item in this pre-radio, pre-television era. And the ivory for the piano was coming from the depopulation of elephants, which, needless to say, had knock-on and ricocheting effects with regard to the human population. 
So fast forward to the late 1950s, early 1960s, when Congo was surging to independence. There is a lot of hysteria about communist infiltration, so-called. One of the reasons why Patrice Lumumba ran afoul of the U.S. authorities is that he was in a de facto alliance with Ghana's Kwame Nkrumah due north, and Nkrumah and Lumumba refused to toe the anti-communist, anti-Moscow line, which marked Lumumba for assassination and marked uh, Nkrumah for being deposed in a coup in early 1966. And by the way, complicit in that coup was the former NAACP official, Franklin Williams, the then U.S. ambassador, because there was a kind of payoff to certain black Americans to get involved in this deviltry in Africa, betraying the homeland, and certain NAACP officials were complicit, just as on this program more than once, uh, we've been forced to berate uh, certain members of the Congressional Black Caucus because they're seeking to punish African nations who refuse to join the sanctions crusade against Moscow, not least because they don't see it in their interest, and not least because from their point of view, a victory for NATO in this conflict with Moscow would help to lead to a replication and duplication of what NATO perpetrated about a decade ago in Libya, North Africa, when Gaddafi, the leader, was overthrown. And as a result, Libya has been plunged into chaos. Darker-skinned Libyans and other migrants into Libya have been targeted, oftentimes enslaved. Tons of weapons have leaked out of Libya, uh, causing chaos as they've drifted into the hands of religious zealots. And once again, we see that certain members of the CBC in Washington have not learned the lessons of African history and indeed are seeking to doom us to a replay of the worst excesses that have taken place in Africa. You know, Dr. Horn, you mentioned ivory. You mentioned rubber. Also, at the time um, that uh, uh, Patrice Lumumba was assassinated, um, the U.S. was exploiting uh, Congo for cobalt and uranium. And now, you know, you mentioned that the uh, Greg, Re- Representative Gregory Meeks bill, H.R. 7311, which is the, quote, countering malign Russia, Russian activities in Africa Act. So at that time, it was a fake, oh, we don't want, uh, you know, whatever. We don't want uh, the Russians to be involved or Moscow to be involved. In reality, we want to steal their resources. And I feel that in a way, it's the same thing now, but it's more, you know, a- a- anti-Russia, anti-China. It's more uh, trying to hold on to hege- hegemony, but I'm sure there's resources well, real, involved. Also, too, I think thoughts. it's important to mention uh, along that whole line that Lumumba was considered to be a pro-Soviet prime minister. So that also ties the then to the now. Right. Most definitely. And as I'm sure many of your listeners know, uh, of the vast resources that reside in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which in territory is about the size of Western Europe, is the mineral known as coltan, which is on the smartphones, in the smartphones, that uh, persist in the millions uh, in the United States, not to mention in the billions across uh, planet Earth. Uh, this coltan 
comes into our phones by dint of shameless and gross exploitation of African miners. And I should also say that there's another aspect to this story that needs to be explored. Uh, Many of us, I think, know that with the decolonization of Africa, the detritus of white supremacy has made its way to this continent. I'm speaking of Elon Musk, purportedly the richest man on planet Earth, whose roots are in apartheid South Africa. I'm speaking of Peter Thiel, T-H-I-E-L, one of Donald Trump's uh, top backers, a billionaire investor in Silicon Valley stocks who had his teenage years in what used to be called German Southwest Africa, now Namibia. But I could also refer to the Swiss corporation known as Glencore, which is also led by men whose roots are in apartheid South Africa. Glencore not only exploits shamelessly Congo, it's been implicated in bribing African officials throughout the continent so that they could gain a stranglehold over Africa's vast natural resources to the point where today it's very difficult to discuss bauxite or iron ore or coltan, just to name a few, without invoking the name of Glencore. So what's remarkable about 2022 is that this shameless exploitation of Africa and Africans continues. However, it just takes place in a different context. Well, and to that point, all of this took me back or takes me back because Lumumba was trying to use Congo's natural resources to raise the quality of life and standard of living for the indigenous Congolese. That just made me think about Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran, who was trying to use the oil resources of Iran to raise the standard of living for Iranians. And of course, we know that the United States overthrew him. And so this to me, just this is just more of the standard operating procedure. Franklin Roosevelt and um, uh, Norman Schwarzkopf's father were involved in the assass- in the uh, removal of Mohammed Mossadegh. Uh, so this is just early examples of standard operating procedure for the United States. Well, and listeners should also know that it's not all gloom and doom. Many of us recall that in the aftermath of the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, that struggle did not cease in the larger Congo. We also know that there is another Congo, speaking of its neighbor across the Congo River, now known as the Republic of the Congo, or Congo Brazzaville, as opposed to Congo Kinshasa. We know that the Republic of the Congo, the smaller Congo, uh, during the height of the Cold War, was known as the People's Republic of the Congo. In fact, in my book on Southern Africa, I talk about Black Panthers from the United States decamping to what is now the Republic of Congo, finding sanctuary, sukkar, and support there. So I think we need to uplift the story of Patrice Lumumba, and we should also uplift it in the context of forcing and compelling the Brussels-based regime to pay reparation in the billion to the Congo, to the what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which will only serve to provide impetus for paying reparations to the descendants of the Congo who made their way in shackles and chains across 
the Atlantic, uh, speaking of the population we refer to as African-American. And let me correct myself. I said Franklin Roosevelt. It was actually his nephew, Kermit Roosevelt, who was involved in the overthrow of Mohammed Mossadegh. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 